morning, Watermark. Our passage today is Matthew 11, 1 through 6. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. All right. Hello again. Everybody good? Hi. Okay. Um, Stand up real fast. We're going to do something uh, that we haven't done like in about a month or two. Um, We are are going to do the Shema, the amended version that Jesus wrote, uh, the Jesus Creed. And so uh, if you haven't done this with us, um, welcome. It's going to be fun. Okay. So remember, um, this is an ancient Jewish prayer. They were passionate. They said things loudly and, uh, and with feeling and meaning. And I know a lot of you are just not comfortable expressing yourselves in a worship setting. I'm uncomfortable with your discomfort. Um, and so we're going to say this loudly. And so the first line, you're going to repeat after me. And then we're going to say this together with feeling and heart and passion. All right? Ready? Here we go. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Elechenu. Adonai Echad. All right, that's good. Okay, here we go. Ready? Together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Thank you. You may be seated. Okay. Now, we are... We're going full rabbi today. Are you ready? Um, We are in this passage here. This is a really interesting passage that requires a little bit of background. Um, I'll give that to you as we go. I'll start off today um, with um, sort of, okay, we'll just, I'll put this up and then we'll go from there. Um, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is a long time ago we studied this, like, like 50 weeks ago. Um, and it was, uh, we did a whole sermon on, on John the Baptist and what he was doing, what his message was. He appeared as a, uh, he came out as a prophet. He was, he dressed weird. Um, he wore camel's hair, which in case you didn't know, was a weird thing. Now a nice camel hair blazer is, is nice, but not back then. Um, he fasted his whole life. Uh, only thing he ate was locusts and honey. Um, and his father was a priest, worked in the temple and, and he's like, dad, I'm not going to conform to your system. And he left the temple and he went out into the wilderness. And instead of doing baptisms in the temple in the mikvah, he did them in the Jordan river. And he proclaimed that everyone needs to abandon the temple because uh, God is done with it. It is heading into exile um, because it's perverted and it's wrong. And so he goes out into the wilderness and he's there. Um, and he's calling the people to exit the Holy land, uh, the city of David, to the wilderness, and, and he, he gathers them there by the river where they first entered into the Holy Land uh, centuries earlier, and he's going to baptize them anew and send them in to start over. So, uh, John was the, co- the cousin of Jesus. Um, there's a lot of hints in the text that he studied under the same rabbi as Jesus. Um, when Jesus is asked by the spiritual leaders, where did you get your authority? He says, where did John get, get his? That's a, a Jewish way of saying... John knows we studied under the same guy. Um, I, 
I picture John and Jesus together when they were young, studying the scriptures, uh, memorizing the Pentateuch, and, and coming to a new realization about what needs to happen um, in the first century, in this second temple Judaism period. Um, and they're going to launch a revolution. Um, and Jesus is the messianic figure, and John's the forerunner to this whole thing. And they modeled it after Isaiah. Um, the way John dresses, the way John eats, everything is modeled after Isaiah, Ezekiel, um, these ancient prophets. So um, when we find John mentioned uh, in this passage, Matthew chapter 11, where we are, John has his own disciples. Um, they have been following him, learning his teachings, and they're probably likely going to be sent out to do John's work. Actually, we know that they did. Because there's actually, believe it or not, still a remnant of John the Baptist's disciples today. Craig Keener, uh, a biblical theologian, scholar, historian, writes about them in his commentary that I mentioned last week. Um, they, they, they claim to be um, descendant from the followers of John the Baptist. Who really knows? But um, they had, it, was a, it was a movement. Uh, several times throughout the Gospels, you're going to run into the followers of John. They come to Jesus and his disciples. Um, here, they come to Jesus and they have a specific question for Jesus, we find out that John is in prison. Um, It says uh, in Matthew chapter 14, if you skip ahead, it says, now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. The people revered John. Um, there had not been a prophet in, in, in the Middle East there in 400 years. And John made it obvious what he was here to do. Um, and so John had a specific message about what the Messiah was going to do. He also had specific words for the people in charge. And he confronted King Herod um, on what he believed was absolutely wrong thing to do. Here's basically what happened. Herod Antipas of Galilee... Um, he's paid a visit. At some point, he pays a visit to his brother in Rome, Herod's brother, um, and he steals his wife, basically seduces her and brings her back and divorces his own wife and sends her out. John says, this is not okay. Uh, 21st century American Christians, we tend to read this from a, a Puritan moralist perspective and say, well, it's because he was committing adultery. The fact is, this was likely a political move. This was likely she may have been connected to power or land or money in some way. Um, and he was usurping some sort of power from his brother, um, doing some nefarious things. A lot of people have written about this stuff. It, we don't have to get into it. It doesn't matter. Um, but what he was doing was oppressive and it was wrong. Um, and it was sin in the eyes of the Jewish people. John calls it out. Herod arrests John, throws him in prison. John is imprisoned here. Um, this is called, um, I don't, I don't want to get this wrong, uh, the Fortress of Mercurius. This is all that's left of it. Um, it was a massive fortress built 100 years before the time of, of John uh, by, um, by Herod. Um, and it, uh, it eventually became sort of this torture fortress kind of place where there was tons and tons of different cells. You can look up online if you type in Fortress of Mercurius and you Google that. There's detailed images of what this place looked like. John would have been held in this really small concrete room with no windows, just simply a grate above him into the next room where the people would drop food down. Um, And his disciples would have come and visit him while he's there and they would speak to him down through the grate. And he was there for several years and he's suffering. So imagine this. You're John. You are, you, you have spent your life living in open spaces. You've never slept indoors. You've proclaimed this message. Um, 
And one day you're arrested for, for calling out, speaking truth to power, basically. And you're arrested and you're thrown in prison. And you're there in prison um, and your disciples are coming to you. And you're like, this is fine. I, it's, it's okay. I kind of expected this kind of stuff to happen. Um, when you speak like this, um, give me reports on Jesus, my cousin, who is, who is in charge of the second half of the plan, which is I'm going to go before the Messiah. He's going to be the Messiah and they're going to do this thing. Um, his, John's disciples learn all about what Jesus is doing. They go back and they're reporting to John down through the hole into his cell and telling him all kinds of things that Jesus is doing. And John is very confused. John had this general idea that the Messiah was going to come and vanquish the enemies and the oppressors of the Jewish people. He was going to lead a revolt that was going to destroy the Romans and disassemble their empire. And the Jewish people would live there in their land by themselves in a national sort of nationalistic kind of state with no one else but the Jews living there. Now, this is not what the Old Testament taught, believe it or not. This is something that arose during the, what's called the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There's 400 years there. And in that time, the Jewish people are there in their land, but they're not ruling themselves. They're being oppressed by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians have run roughshod over them. They've been oppressed by them. And then the Romans charge in, take over the Assyrians. Everyone's ignoring the Jewish people who, who lived on the land. And the Romans come in and they take over the Jewish people's land. And generation after generation after generation, the Jewish people are being completely oppressed. And in that time, this bitterness rose within the Jewish people that caused them to read the scriptures a different way. That caused them to think, well, one day, the Messiah that is spoken of throughout the prophets is going to come. And when he comes, he's going to vanquish our enemies. He's going to utterly destroy them. Okay? However, Jesus... um, the, the reports that he's hearing about Jesus. Jesus is sitting at, at the table with sinners, sharing the table with sinners. He is healing the children of high-born centurions, Roman centurions. Um, Jesus is spending all of his time with people in, who, in John's mind, have nothing to do with the mission of freeing the Jewish people. And John is very confused. And he's getting upset. Because he has lived his life in a specific way, waiting for a specific thing to happen, and now he's suffering in prison while Jesus is not doing this thing that John thought he was going to do. This brings us to today's passage, and it goes like this. So when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Do you sense, like, the sarcasm? Are, are you the one who's going to come do this thing that we've been waiting for, or is it going to be someone else? Have you gotten sidetracked in these other things that you're doing? Um... And it's getting very, very difficult because John has all these expectations that are, that are not being met. So John's like, maybe you're not the Messiah that we had talked about that you would be. And maybe there's another Messiah because honestly, you may not know this, but in the first century, Messiahs were a dime a dozen. There was tons of people rising up claiming to be the king of Israel and being killed. Tons of them. You can read, they're even mentioned in the scripture several times. Um, and he says, you're, you're not doing what we said. John has these expectations about Jesus that are not being met. And when they are not met, John begins to doubt. He says, things were not supposed to be like this. They were not supposed to go like this. And I'm beginning to doubt that you are who you said you are. I'm beginning to doubt that you are who they say you are. I'm I'm beginning to doubt the whole thing. Now, if I may pause the history play-by-play for a minute. Um, 
I think this is how doubts tend to start. I know lots of you in this room, lots of you in our community have gone through intense periods of doubt, deconstruction, maybe you're rebuilding, or maybe you've just, you're settled into your doubts and you don't know what to think. Um, Oftentimes I would point to the fact that your doubts have been caused because someone gave you something, an expectation that was never meant to be. Uh, A way of looking at Jesus that Jesus was never meant to be looked at through, a way of reading the text that the text was never meant to be read through, all kinds of lenses that you have been given over time that have been influenced by the people that came before you. And you had no say in this. I'm not putting any blame on you. Um, We get off track over time. It's kind of what happens. So we're going to talk about this today, what to do when we see things that don't align with, with what we see in the text. How do, how do we reconcile these things together? What do we do when these doubts arise? Um, John's doubts arose from cultural lenses that had been built through bitterness of the, Roman, of the Romans, of the Assyrians. And over time, they became very, very bitter. They became very, very nationalistic. Um, there is nothing in the Old Testament that encourages the people to be nationalistic. They were put there to be a blessing to the world around them. They were meant to be a holy nation set apart not ruling over and conquering everyone else, but to be in the midst of the world, tabernacling with God in the the midst of the world and being a blessing to those around them. The Christians are supposed to be the same way. And so there are all these things that John was was bringing to the text. Um, A lens about how to read the scriptures. He began reading it wrong. They had all began reading it wrong. Um, And there's all kinds of theories that are rising up. We have their text from the intertestamental period, also called Second Temple Judaism, if you read... If you, if you see that phrase anywhere, um, their texts are very revealing about what had happened to their interpretation of scriptures, how it had changed over time. I would argue the same thing about American evangelicalism in our faith today. We have been handed several lenses over the last, um, really, there's stacks of them, really. I mean, over the last 200 years, we've been handed several different lenses that have to do with nationalism and, and striving for power. Um, we've begun to think about America as some sort of Israel instead of some sort of Babylon, as the Bible would have us think about it. We have began to... Uh, we also have lenses that we've been given since the Reformation, um, sort of um, commentaries on... Um, sort of a commentary on the Catholic Church, which gave us other lenses. And so we have these lenses stacked really, really, really deep. Um, but when you actually pull all that away and you get to the original understanding of sort of, you do your best to understand what did a first century Palestinian Jewish Christian think about the world? Um, they believed they were a continuation of Israel. They believed that we were put here, that the gospel, the good news, was good news not just for them, but it was good news for everyone around them. It was good news for everyone. That by them, following Jesus and living in a way that aligned with the teaching of their rabbi as he interprets the scriptures, that the world would be made new and whole again. Instead, we have been given lenses that tell you, um, one of them is very puritanical. It's very like, no, the Bible is about, is about right and wrong. It's about morality. And it's about you knowing how to avoid sin. There's some of that there. That is not the main primary focus of the Bible. The primary focus of the Bible is not actually sin. Um, and then you've also been given lenses that say, oh, the primary focus of the Bible is the afterlife. The whole point of it is to mentally ascend to something to where you make a decision, and then when you die, you fly away somewhere else. It's abandonment of all that is here. 
But God created this all and he said it's good. And God's plan, according to even the prophets, was to bring peace and wholeness and healing and reconciliation of all things to God and everything would dwell under one Lord, Jesus. So we have these lens that we've been, lenses that we've been given that do not necessarily align with what Jesus was doing. And then when we begin to say, well, I, oftentimes we have this, this lens of prosperity, right? Like you go to church, you tithe, you pray your prayers every day, you do every quiet time, you read your Bible, you do all these things, and then God will bless you with health, wealth, and whatever. It's, we're a consumeristic, capitalistic culture. Of course, it's gonna, some of it's gonna, we're gonna have a lens of money when we read the Bible. Um, and then we do everything we can to follow Jesus as intensely as we can in the ways that, that we have been taught. And then, and then a family member gets cancer or there's an auto accident or a spouse leaves or there's a death in the family. You have no idea how many people I grew up with that were with me in my faith journey and then they completely lost their faith because of unexpected things like a divorce or a death in the family. I have many family members who lost their faith, family members who lost their faith when our cousin died. And they could not reconcile what they were seeing with what they had heard. And so they threw away everything that they had heard. John's doubts about Jesus only happened because he, he had been given some lenses which did not work. He was wrong about what Jesus was doing. A biblical figure had misinterpreted Jesus. And he sends his, um, he sends his disciples to Jesus. And here we go. Jesus replies to them. Go back and report to John what you see, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That is so not an answer at all. Okay, now, the answer you did not hear only happened because, that's a weird sentence, because Jesus is a rabbi and this is how rabbis talked. They don't answer questions with answers. He could have just said, yes, of course, I'm the Messiah. Thank you. We'll go tell John. (laughs) And then I don't have a sermon today. But Jesus just starts talking about people are being healed. People are being made whole again. Go tell John what you've seen here, what you've seen me do. And tell him these things. And he tells him a specific thing. Um, now, uh, first I want to talk about his answer because this is a very rabbinical thing. Um, I, have, I have friends who studied under like um, uh, Messianic Jewish professors. And when you ask them a question, they ask you a question. And then you try to respond and then they ask you another question. They're trying to get you to answer your own question by using your own stupid brain instead of theirs. <laughs> They're trying to teach you critical thinking um, and how to handle ancient texts. And they're trying to teach you that like, The answer doesn't come by someone telling you what the answer is. The answer comes by you thinking deeply from from the depths of your soul, looking through the lens with which you have, and then you will determine your answer. And then you should poke and prod your own answer and say, is this the answer I was supposed to come up with? And if not, how did I get here? Well, I went through this lens and this lens and this lens, and maybe I should get rid of some of these and go back to the text and read anew. Okay. Um, There's a, a New Testament 
Messianic Jewish scholar. His name is uh, Ray Vanderland, and he tells this story that I love about his, him and his wife. They're in old town Israel, and they're walking through, and there's like these shops along the way, and his wife turns into this shop, um, and they're in, a, they're, in, um, they're in a particular place in Israel where there is um, some of the older men still live, some of the older people, people in general still live uh, in, in, in sort of the old fashioned, old school traditions where um, the elder man is not going to talk to a woman who walks into his shop. He'll answer questions to her, but he's not going to initiate conversation. It's considered improper. She's not a Jewish person. He doesn't know who she is. Um, and so she's in the shop and she's looking at these carvings that are there. And, and this man has carved them all. And she's looking at them and she's really impressed by them. And, and she goes to the counter and she says, and she, she, she's really enamored. She says, which one is your favorite? And the guy looks at her and says, ma'am, do you have any children? And she goes, yes, I do. Why do you ask? And it's really good that she asked that question or that would have been the end of it and that would have been awkward and weird. <laughs> um, and he says, so he, she asked the question, so now he can, he can talk again. And he says, which one is your favorite? And she gets it. The answer is, that, there's the answer. They're his children. He doesn't have a favorite. He has taken them from what they were to what they are. And then she asks more questions and he answers by asking more questions, go back and forth. And her husband's waiting outside and finally she comes walking out and she's like crying and he says, what happened? And she goes, I just met Jesus in there. And he's, uh. <laughs> That's what she said because she had been reading the text and she realized like this is what Jesus is doing. He's asking questions. He's leading the conversation. He's trying to get you to think deeply about what you're doing instead of just giving you pat answers. He's not interested in that. He wants you to inspect your own heart. So Jesus' answer is actually a quote from Isaiah uh, chapter 35. And hold on a second. I am way off my notes. Okay, here we go. Isaiah 35. And he quotes a specific segment of it. Now, Jesus and John and all their disciples are all Jewish boys. Jewish boys would have had the Pentateuch memorized and also the books of Isaiah and several other of the, of the major prophets. Um, and so when you make a reference in the ancient world, you didn't say it by saying Isaiah 35 because they weren't numbered yet until like the 15th century. So they would quote a part of the scripture and then it would bring the entire passage into mind and you would run through it in your head and you would look for the answer. In what they're saying. And all, it's called stringing pearls. And all through the scriptures, you're going to see people doing this. Just giving out little pieces of scripture to cause people to go back and read this. Jesus even, Jesus even says at one point, um, go and ponder what this means. And he just, one line of scripture. So he, meant, he mentions um, a couple lines from Isaiah 35. And if they were to go back and they were to ponder Isaiah 35, it would, it, it's broken into a couple sections. One section about the desert. One section about healing. Um, the desert section is first. The healing section is second. John came first and he went to the desert. Jesus came second and Jesus was doing healing. And if you read the passage, it starts off talking about springtime in the desert. Okay? The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, of the splendor of our God. So that's the first part. And Jesus is saying, John, that is you. You did your job. You did a good job. Now notice, he's not... He's not lashing out at John and saying, uh, you misinterpreted it. You're theologically wrong. 
Instead, he commends him for the work that he did, even in his wrong theology of what the Messiah was going to do. He says, John, when you went into that desert, you brought new life. You, you put life where there was nothing but death. The people of Israel are made much better because of the work that you did. Do not for a second regret anything that you've done. There's nothing for you to be ashamed about. Don't even rethink that. He's like complimenting him, okay? Now, the second part of Isaiah 35 says this. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then will the lame leak like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and the streams and streams in the desert. So this is the Jesus part. John comes first. Jesus comes second. John's the forerunner. Jesus is following. John's preparing the way and Jesus comes. Right? So it's all here. And when he does this, after, so after Jesus commends John and says, you did a good job. You brought life where there was none. Don't you regret what you did. You were wrong about me, but I'm inviting you now to remember Isaiah 35, which is about, it's a prophecy about the coming Messiah. It starts off in the desert, but what comes next? Healing and wholeness. It is not what you were talking about in, in, um, in Matthew three twelve when he's in the desert. He says, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning the chaff with an unquenchable fire. That's how John talked about it. And Jesus says, First, there's you in the desert. You're doing your thing. And then I come and I bring reconciliation and healing. This is the role of the Messiah. And he's inviting John to read the text anew and to change his mind about what the Messiah is here to do. It's this really beautiful exchange that we have captured in the ancient world. It's, it's, it's incredibly beautiful. Um, so, we sometimes imagine that there are people that have a full picture of God. Um, they've got it figured out. They've done a lot of work. They've done a lot of studying and reading. They've got it all nailed down. They know exactly what Jesus was doing. They know what the, what the Jews were doing. They understand the setting of the day. They know how to read the scriptures. And they can tell you every passage is exactly what it means. I promise you there's no one in the world like that. And if someone claims to be like that, they're a dangerous person. You should stay away from them. Um, second, um, I would argue from scripture that the characters in the Bible... That is not them either. There's not a single character in the Bible other than Jesus that seems to have a full picture of exactly what God is doing. They have little bits and pieces. Um, some of them are, are flat out misinterpreting ancient texts. Some of them are, but, the, but they're all sort of like put together in this story and moving together as a community towards Jesus. And Jesus takes it all. Jesus is regularly um, correcting his disciples. And so he basically several, several times says like, there's things you're not even gonna understand until I'm gone. John 14, like, you'll get it one day. But when you look at John, John didn't have a full grasp of what Jesus was doing. But God still used him. John had doubts and he still used him. There's uh, this theologian that, that I've been reading lately. Um, he's a mid-century theologian uh, in Germany. His name was Ernst Kesemann, which I found out last time I quoted him here. That, that word means cheese man. <laughs> Ernst cheese man, poor guy. Um, so Ernst Kesemann, um, he was a pastor in, in Germany, studied at, at Bonn, the huge theological seminary there. And he, um, as Hitler was coming to power under the Third Reich, I've told this story, um, there was a lot of, of movement in the church to sort of get on the side of Hitler so that they wouldn't be condemned and 
locked up, and Kesemann would have none of it. He, he kicked all the, all the Nazis out of his church. Um, he ended up in prison for it, and while he's in prison, as you do, he wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews. Um, and uh, he, in his, he's got this brilliant book called um, Perspectives on Paul. It was a groundbreaking book. It sort of woke us up a lot to the places, the lenses that had been broken, places we went wrong. It's very hard to read. But there's a couple of pages where he goes into great detail about how Paul didn't have the whole picture. And he points it out. One thing he says here uh, in, in that book, he says, he says, curious as it sounds, the apostle does not seem to have any precise knowledge about the concrete circumstances of the crucifixion. Um, and he's right. When you actually go study it, there's things that Paul just doesn't, doesn't know, hadn't been taught. Um, he has, in 1 Corinthians 2.8, um, he seems to have no knowledge of the episode in the garden, the trial before Pilate, the 30 pieces of silver. And he goes into great detail and lays this all out. Like Paul didn't have all the details. Paul knew Jesus had been crucified. He knew that he had risen. And he knew that this message had done incredible things to the people of God. And he was trying to grasp that. But he didn't have all the details. Um, Paul's, even Paul's salvation experience is really interesting. Um, in Acts chapter 9, you see it. It starts off talking about, um, it says, uh, Paul's on the road to Damascus. He's going to kill, kill some more Christians. And there's a light and a voice. He's knocked off his horse. He's made blind. And the voice says, I'm the one you've been persecuting. Go to this city and await orders. That was Paul's conversion experience. I want you to understand that. I, I know oftentimes we have this like concrete thing. Here's how you do this. Here's how you lead someone to Christ. Flashbang. Yell at them, push them off their horse. <laughs> Tell them to go to St. Petersburg and await instructions. That's what happened to Paul. No joke, that's his conversion experience. Paul doesn't even seem to grasp who this was until you get to Corinthians, um, where in, in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And then he says, and he appeared to me as one abnormally born. So later, only later on does Paul start saying, he changes from like light and voice. It was Jesus. That tends to be how our journey goes. You get down the road, you look back, you're like, oh, no, that was Jesus. This thing happened. It was traumatic. It was, it was huge. It was life-changing. It was Jesus. But in the moment, we don't see Jesus because we're not prepared. We're looking for Jesus in a specific way, in a specific thing, and we don't see it. But down the road, we look back and like that entire trial, that entire thing I went through, that was Jesus speaking to me, guiding me, reforming my heart and changing me. That's what that was. Um, Kesemon even goes, goes farther because Paul, so Paul goes to this city and he's sitting there and the Christians that are there, there's already churches there. Who are, the churches already have creeds. They already have belief statements. They have, um, and they sit Paul down um, and Priscilla and Aquila really start to teach Paul everything that, that Paul didn't know. And they're giving Paul all their information. They're probably missing some too. And what you see with Kesemon is he says this. He says, long before Paul, the liturgical creeds emphasized the death of Jesus as a saving event. So they had that. They knew the cross was a saving event. But then within that, there's all these variations about what exactly this meant? Today, there's a majority of people in our, in our country who say, well, it's, just, it's penal substitutionary atonement and everything else is just wrong. Paul would say, that's, that's one. In the first two centuries, there's 12 different atonement theories. Now there's even more as people go through different things, different modes of suffering, and they come through and, and they look at the cross differently. 
And Kesemon points out that Paul's perfectly okay with that. It says, the Apostle Paul picks up the various variations of this proclamation without giving preference to anyone in particular. And here's what he means. Um, I want to point out a few of these to you because I want, I want, this is helpful to me to see. Romans 3.25, Paul describes the crucifixion as a sacrificial death. That is, the people have guilt for their sins. They bring a sacrifice and they lay it on the altar to appease God. Okay? And to enter into reconciliation with God. That is, Paul speaks about it that way there. Um, in Galatians 3.13 and, and 2 Corinthians 5, Paul describes Jesus' death as vicarious punishment. We were going to be punished and then Jesus was punished in our place. And he describes it like that. It's a different audience. He's saying something different to them. Um, and then in 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 7.23 and Galatians 4, Paul links Jesus' death to this ancient, there's a word there that, so the word is like redemption, but the way we use it today, we come at it through a, a money lens, a capitalist lens, and we say, well, it's, it's like a coupon, and you redeem the coupon, right? That's all we can come up with. There's like, how does it relate to money? I don't know. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, so that's how we tend to like look at redemption. Redemption in the first century was when you would take your money and you would buy a slave and set that slave free in the name of your God. That's what redemption was in the first century. And that's how Paul describes it. Um, in these three passages. And then um, in, in Galatians 2, 20 and to 3, 1, Paul describes it as a prographo, which is where we get our word photograph. It's like a picture. It's a picture of God's love. Jesus suffering on the cross is a picture of God's love. There are all kinds of ways that, that the crucifixion is described and that the resurrection, and that, that sort of argue like, here's what this was doing. I, I see this, I see this, I see this. And Paul's like, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. That's great. And as they're going to these different places with these, all these different views, with Hellenism and there's Jews and there's, um, there's Greeks, there's all kinds of people. And they're preaching the gospel in a way that like, this sets you free this way. This sets you free this way. This sets you free this way. There's a reason why oppressed people tend to lean more towards liberation theology because they were enslaved. These things are important. Um, the word of God and the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ. All of this speaks to you where you are in your struggle and your problem. And yes, you're going to be given a lens. Paul tends to think that's okay. There is grace for you. And we're going to disagree. None of us has all of it, which is why the body of Christ is so important because we come together all from different backgrounds, all carrying different lenses, all talking about Jesus. I see him this way. I see him from this angle. I see him from this angle. And then you have some people who say, I don't need organized religion. I'm going to bounce. And they go out and they go out into the, they just hang out on the beach and every Sunday morning by themselves and study the Bible. And that's, I'm sure that's beautiful and effective and stuff, but you're missing so many different aspects of God. You're missing it. You can't even see aspects of yourself that will be reflected back to you in community where people come up to you and they say, I've noticed this about you. And you're like, I never would have seen that. Thank you. Or I noticed this about Jesus. I never would have seen that. I don't have your life experience. Tell me more. Iron sharpens iron. We grow together towards Christ. Nobody is working with one complete picture of Christ. That is why the church is so important. I learn things from you guys all the time. I had these conversations that are like, oh, I didn't, I didn't grow up Episcopal. When I meet an Episcopal and I talk to them, I'm like, oh, that is beautiful. The way that you view this particular thing or this particular, I didn't see it. I grew up Southern Baptist. Now, nobody, I would argue, even in scriptures is working with a complete picture of who Jesus is. Um, and here's the thing. 
Jesus doesn't shun these people. He doesn't pull you aside and say, uh, we have a, a particular way of talking about Jesus in this church. And line 7.5b, um, you're in violation of this one. And so you need to repent because now you're in church discipline and you need to make this right again. Because somehow unity of thought, they think, brings peace and love. It doesn't. Peace comes through grace. If peace came through unity, then Rome would have been victorious. Um, peace comes through grace. That's what Paul emphasized in the church. And so, Jesus doesn't shun these people. Um, there's a fascinating passage at the end of Matthew 28, which you have to see. After the crucifixion, the resurrection, Jesus tells them, you're going to meet me here at this place, and we're going to catch up and we're going to talk because some stuff has happened, right? Now, they go to meet him there, and in uh, Matthew 28, 16, it says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go, and when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Why would an author write that at the end? Aren't they trying to make a point? They're like, no, we're unified in this thing. This is, we get it. They're like, but some doubted. Some of Jesus' own disciples, after watching Jesus die and meeting the resurrected Lord and meeting him there, some of them doubted. Some people will always struggle with doubt. Maybe you will. Um, You may never be able to shake that lens. But it's okay. There is grace for you. You're in good company with Jesus' own disciples. Um, if you're waiting for someone that has figured it all out to give you all the answers before you really follow Jesus, you're never going to follow Jesus. Um, You won't find it. Doubt, skepticism, changing your mind, all of this is part of the journey of faith. I purposely leave all my old podcasts up. Have you noticed this? They go all the way back to Jonah, like when I taught through that, and and then Genesis, like eight years. If you go back and listen to those, you will see that I'm in a completely different theological construct. And I'm working my way through my faith because I'm growing and I'm changing along with you. And whereas some people talk about how faith goes like this and it's a journey like this, I tend to see faith kind of going like this sometimes. I go back and I pick up old stuff and I say, you know, I used to look at this this way, but now these words mean something different to me. And this is beautiful again. And I pick it back up and I start walking. Faith is a journey. It changes. Always. People come up to me and say, but yeah, but you said this thing five years ago. Of course I said that thing. Do you think this now? No. But how can you just change your mind? Because I studied the Bible more. I've been called back to read it again with a new lens. And I will read it again and I will change my mind again. And I will read it again and I will change my mind again. And I'm inviting you to join me. Because maybe you'll see something that I don't. Um, John, Paul, the early Christians... They weren't working with a full picture. The early Christians, for the first two centuries, most Christians were completely illiterate, could not read the Bible. They did not have what you have. They couldn't read the Bible. You know what they did? They went to these cathedrals and they sat in these giant cathedrals with stained glass everywhere and they would stare at the stained glass and they would try to ponder the meaning behind it. This is why that stained glass exists because people couldn't read. This is how they understood the story of God. Pictures. And so what they're actually doing is getting a picture of the maker of the stained glass is the image of God. And God works through that anyways. Here we are. Doubt is okay. Skepticism is okay. Don't be paralyzed. Things will normalize. Things will change. It's part of the journey. It is part of your soul reforming and connecting to God again. You will keep growing. You will keep changing. Two years from now, you'll look back and say, I've changed my mind on that. I didn't even realize it until now. Stay connected with other Christians. Stay connected with your church. 
whether it's this church or some other church. Stay connected. Walk the journey. Be open and honest. Ask questions. Listen to questions. Seek answers together. We're, we're all here for each other. Email your house church leader. Email your brother or sister in Christ. Email me. Email the elders. We're all on this journey together, crawling towards Jesus. Um, Christianity, if I could define it, it is a 2,000-year conversation about what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus means for our world. That's what it means. And every generation lives in a different world, and every generation is going to see it a little differently. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus has specific meanings for us today in this world, reminding us that Jesus is Lord, that our country is not Israel. It is Babylon, and we have been enslaved and to break free. We're going to take communion. Communion is something we do every week. Our communion servers can go ahead, and you can take the elements, and you can spread around the room. Um, We're doing today communal communion. Redundant, I know. Um, in other words, there's a rule. It didn't go well first service. I saw a lot of people taking communion by themselves. Not cool. <laughs> you're going to take communion with somebody else. As you're in line waiting to take communion, maybe turn around, look at the person behind you, make it real awkward, and say, we're going to have to take communion together. And you're going to take a piece of bread, and you're going to dip it in the wine, and, and you're going to look at each other, and you're going to affirm the body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ spilled for you. And you're going to take communion because we all come to the table equal, as equals. Um, some terrible sinners may have communion with some wonderful saints and you're going to see you're the same. Some uh, rich and some poor are going to see that they're the same. People from different backgrounds and cultures and races are going to come together and see that you're the same. And at the table, we all come to the table together and God gives us all equally. Broke, body of Christ broken for you, blood of Christ spilled for you. Um, let's take communion, shall we? Make sure you're paying attention. Nobody takes communion alone. It's okay to get noisy. I don't care. Okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people. Guide us. Um, Whatever errant lenses that we are carrying, I ask that you would reveal them to us. I ask that we would repent of them, that we would put them aside, that we wouldn't carry guilt and shame for them, that we would affirm that, like, this is what we've been given. And I ask that you would reform us. Help us to see you in a new light. Thank you. In your name, amen.